To begin, let's start off with a story and a teaching from the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Mark chapter 8, we'll begin in verse 34. Holy Spirit, come. Have mercy on me. And more than just mercy, I ask for grace, for your empowering presence on me, in me, through me, on, in, and through every man and woman here. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Mark chapter eight, verse 34. Then Jesus called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and he said this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Our nation is built around the myth of the rugged individual, in particular on the West Coast. We love to tell the mythology of Lewis and Clark on the Willamette River or John Muir in Yosemite, or more recently in Elon Musk in LA, this lone man or woman off to make a name for himself or herself in the wild of the West. This ethos is buried deep in our psyche. We see it in the fierce anti-authoritarian, anti-commitment, don't tell me what to do, Portland mantra. We see it in the disrupt the system and tear it all down, the cultural violence of a Silicon Valley. We see it in the celebrity worship of a Hollywood. We want so badly, in particular on the West Coast, to believe that we are in charge of our own destiny. And yet, as the poet John Donne so wisely said, no man is an island. Sisters, I would argue, no lady is either. You're maybe a bit ahead of us or leaps and bounds ahead of us, but neither are you. The hard truth is we're all disciples or followers of somebody or something. The question is not are you a disciple? It's who or what are you a disciple of? At some point in life, and some of you aren't quite there yet, but usually by your 20s or your 30s, at some point you have to chart a course. Right, there are some people who just love to wander like in perpetuity, right, decade after decade. But most of us just start to get a little bit dizzy. And at some point, you have to chart a course through life. You, and to do that, first off, you need a vision of some kind of a destination, what we would call a vision of the good life. And the tricky thing is that vision has to come from somebody else who's been there and back to talk about it, because you've never been there. So it has to come through a luminary or an intellectual or an author or a religious teacher or a psychologist or a religion or a tradition or an ethnic heritage or a Bible. It has to come from somewhere or something outside of yourself. And even then, that's not enough. You still need a map and or a guide or ideally both to get from where you are now to where you want to be. You need grace for the journey, food, provision, shelter, and you need some traveling companions. It's a very long journey not to go alone. Now, if your vision is good and beautiful and true, and if your map is accurate, and if your guide is trustworthy and wise, and if you have what you need for the journey and you're not alone, you are in good shape. Just, it's a long one right, lifelong, but settle in, keep at it. But if your vision is off kilter, even just a little bit, there's a cumulative effect of a trajectory over the period of a life. Or if your map is, you have the right destination in mind, but man, it's, your map is all wonky and it's just off base. Or if your guide is a charlatan, or just incompetent, or just a little bit confused or if you don't have what you need for the journey, or if you, you have all of that, but you're just alone and you don't have anybody to travel with you, either way, you are into the weeds. To follow Jesus, best as we can tell, is to place your trust, or what the New Testament writers call believe, in Jesus' vision of the good life. To take his life and his teachings as your map, his presence as your guide, his grace for the journey, his followers as your companions on the way. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, this word disciple is a bit foreign to the modern ear. In Greek, the original language of the New Testament, it's mathetes. Can you say that? 
mathetes, excellent. And a number of scholars argue, and I, for, not that I, you care, but I agree, that a better English translation of this word is apprentice. To follow Jesus or to be a disciple of Jesus is to, be in a, is to apprentice under Jesus into his vision of life. In our frame of reference at Bridgetown Church, to be an apprentice of Jesus is to organize your life around three very simple goals. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he did. A short word on each. First off, be with Jesus. So Jesus, and this is easy to miss millennia later, but Jesus did not invent discipleship. He was not the first rabbi to have disciples, nor he was he the last. There's a number of other rabbis in the four gospels who have disciples. The Pharisees have disciples. John the baptizer does. And discipleship or apprenticeship was part and parcel of the first century Jewish education system. In fact, it was the apex of it, similar to our you know, postdoctoral fellowship under this celebrity professor at this university or a PhD program or something like that. It was a thing. And if you were an apprentice to a rabbi in the first century, your top priority was very simple, to follow your rabbi. That was not a metaphor. That was literal. You would follow him from town to town and village to village. Um, class was not just, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday from 11 to 11.50 a.m. or whatever. And there was no online, like, distance learning, like, I'm up in Syria, can I Skype in or whatever. There was none of that, right? You would literally give up everything, quit your job, like, take a few years off the family business or the farm or whatever and follow your rabbi around. And um, you would sleep at his side, you would breakfast with him in the morning, and then you would spend every waking moment in his retinue. Now, for apprentices of Jesus, we don't live in that time and place anymore, but nothing has changed. Still, the top priority for us is to be with our rabbi, in this case, Jesus. Now, Jesus is no longer here in the flesh, which he said, if you've read his stuff, he's, hopefully you have, he said, is better. He said, it's better that I go away and in my place is the spirit, which actually is basic math. When Jesus was here in the flesh, there, there was limited access, right? How many, there are billions of followers of Jesus. You're like, I wanna have coffee with you, Jesus, great. He's like, how does two, you know, 20, like 2060, 17 work for you? I have a coffee spot open that Thursday or whatever, right? It just, there were max a few dozen people who had access to Jesus all the time. Now we all have access to Jesus, billions of followers of Jesus all over the world and down through history via the Spirit. The Spirit is always with us. The problem is that we're not always with the Spirit, right? If your mind is anything like mine, it's, I think of Henry Nouwen, monkeys in a banana tree, right? I don't even know, I've never been to a banana, I don't even know what a banana tree looks, actually I do know what one looks like, but I've never seen a monkey and a banana tree. I've seen a monkey, I've seen a banana tree. I've never seen monkeys in a banana tree. This sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. This is, I'm really tired tonight, very long day, all right? Um, but if your mind is anything like mine, it's ADD, like you're a squirrel, like you're just all over the map and your body's in a hurry. To follow Jesus or to apprentice under Jesus is to slow down and to open up your mind, which is the portal to your whole being, to reach in your mind's eye for God's thoughts, to open up your body itself to the reality of God in you. As St. Patrick said, Christ above me, Christ below me, Christ behind me, Christ in front of me, Christ within me. This is what Jesus called abiding, what Paul later called prayer without ceasing. Right, that doesn't mean like a 24-7, never-ending, like ask God for stuff, prayer meeting at church. Like do the math. You would make it till about day five and then you would fall over dead, right? No sleep, no food, no water. Like it's not what he means. What he means is a life where your anchor point is awareness of and connection to God. It's what St. Teresa called contemplation, what Brother Lawrence called the practice of the presence of God, what A.W. Tozer called constant conscious communion. Whatever you call it, it is the natural byproduct of a mind that is set on God all through the day. I've just been just reading and rereading this of late. This is just like, ah, the anthem of my heart, this book, Letters of a Modern Mystic by Laubach. Laubach um, was a missionary during the last century to the Moros, which is a kind of 
Muslim indigenous group in the Philippine island chain, part of the silent billion who could not at the time read or write. He's the only missionary to ever make it onto a U.S. postage stamp due to his groundbreaking work in literacy. If any of you in the field of linguistics, he's a very well-known name. He's literally millions upon millions of people in the developing world. And here in the U.S., it's still around. His program is still in vogue today, have been through his work. But while academics and advocates of social justice remember him as a linguist and his work around literacy, we remember him for the life out of which that grew. His life goal was not literacy for millions of people. That was the byproduct. His life goal was to live every single minute of every single day with Jesus. Early on in what he called his game with minutes, and he does have a book that is called that, he just writes about how his goal was once a minute to bring God to mind, like he would have killed for an Apple Watch. That would have been so helpful, right? This is way before that. Just once a minute, whatever he was in the middle, of, just to bring God to mind. And for him, it was this experiment. And I just want to read to you. This, is, this will take a minute, but I just want to read to you a little bit out of his life. This is a letter from 1930. He writes this. Perhaps a man who has been an ordained minister since 1914 ought to be ashamed to confess that he has never before felt the joy of complete hourly, minute by minute. Now, what shall I call it? More than surrender, I had that before. More than listening to God, I tried that before. I cannot find the word that will mean to you or to me what I am now experiencing. It is a will act. I compel my mind to open straight out toward God. I wait and listen with determined sensitiveness. I fix my attention there, and sometimes it requires a long time early in the morning to attain that mental state. I determine not to even get out of bed until that mindset, that concentration upon God is settled. It also requires determination to keep it there, for I feel as though the words and thoughts of others near me were constantly exerting a drag backward or sideways, sideways. And he did not even have an iPhone, none of that, right? But he writes, after a while, perhaps it will become a habit and the sense of effort will grow less. Later on in his experiment, here's an excerpt from another letter. As he goes down the path, he writes, this concentration upon God is strenuous but everything else has ceased to be. I think more clearly, I forget less frequently. Things which I did with a strain before, I now do easily with no effort whatever. I worry about nothing, lose no sleep. I walk on air a good part of the time. Even the mirror reveals a new light in my eyes and face. I no longer feel in a hurry. Each minute I meet calmly. Nothing can go wrong except in one thing. That is, that God may slip from my mind if I do not keep on guard. If he is there, the universe is with me. My task is simple and clear. And Labach was not alone. Contemporary of his, A.W. Tozer, another writer and follower of Jesus, this time from the busy city of Chicago in the middle of the last century, said that as we, quote, set the heart's attention on Jesus, a habit of soul is forming, there's that word again, habit, which will become after a while a sort of spiritual reflex requiring no more conscious effort on our part. Or Willard, I quote this Willard quote every single year at the Vision Series. It took every ounce of discipline in mind to just quote the last line this year, all right? So that's maturity, not the full paragraph, just the last line. It's my all-time favorite quote. And he ends it with, soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. What all of these master apprentices of Jesus attest to is that after a long period of time, it's not quick, But if you keep at it through what scientists call neuroplasticity, what Paul millennia ago called the renewal of the mind, your mind will begin to anchor itself in the awareness of and connection to God all through the day. You you will progress to this point, it's not a quick thing, but you will progress to this point where the moment you get quiet, a little mental real estate, a quick breath in between a meeting or whatever, you come to a a stoplight or you wake up in the morning before you roll out, like that miracle happens to me a few times a year where I wake up a few minutes before my alarm, it's freakish, you know? Like that, you're there and you, your mind will just go straight to God. That will just, God will be the first thought in your mind. 
And then eventually as you progress beyond that, you'll come to the spot where the same thing is true when you're in the middle of the staff meeting, when you're on TriMet in your morning commute, when you're in the right in the middle of the three children or whatever it is. Your mind will just go back to God, go back to God, go back. Like the compass of a needle constantly returns to the north. And eventually you will begin to experience God not as an idea in your head and a belief system, not as an emotional experience on Sunday night, nothing wrong with either of those, not as anything other than a moment-by-moment reality of friendship and fatherhood from God in you and with you. You'll begin to live from what Thomas Kelly called the unhurried center of peace and power. All as you are just with Jesus. And this is the baseline. If some of you are new to Jesus and you're like, man, there's a lot to it, I don't get it, and there's this whole post-Christian thing we're in and I'm all new, where do I even start? Start right here. Just slow down. Just pick 10 things out of your regular schedule this week and just kill all of them, murder them in Jesus' name. Right, just slow, or pick one. You're like, whoa, whoa, just pick one. Pick one, sorry, I'm always too much, always too much. Calm down, calm down. (laughs) Just slow down and just set your mind, reach out your thoughts for God's thoughts. Just come aware of what's already true of you. You're already one with God, theologically. We just don't live in that reality what is, what is Christian mysticism? It's just an attempt to live out practically what is already true of you theologically, right? God is in you, you are in God, union is the theological word, you're in Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you believe that stuff? Most Christians believe that, very few of them experience it, right? Because one is a theological declaration, the other is a lifestyle. So mysticism, or whatever you wanna call it, the practice of the presence of God, abiding, again, is the Jesus word, is just a lifestyle where you make that the top priority in your life, just to enjoy every day with Jesus, be with Jesus. Because out of that um, comes the next goal, which is, secondly, to become like Jesus. Now again, first century, if you were an apprentice under a rabbi, your goal was to become like your rabbi. This is millennia before the hyper-individualism of the West or of an America. Your goal was to not only think like your rabbi, but even talk like your rabbi, his tone of voice, his mannerisms, his inflection, and above all, to live like your rabbi. As a apprentices of Jesus, even in our individualistic society, the the goal is the same, to become like Jesus, our rabbi or our teacher. It's a Hebrew word and that's what it means, teacher. There are three great, great questions in life. Who is God, who are we, and what is the good life? Every religion, every philosophy, every psychology, every worldview, every education system is an attempt to answer those three questions. Secularism is an attempt to answer the first one, to to create a whole society as if God is not real and does not exist. How's it going? It's not going all that well, depending on how you measure what your metrics are. To apprentice under Jesus is to, again, place your trust in or to believe in Jesus' answers to those three questions. To let his vision of who God is, who you are, and what the good life is shape the belief in that to shape the person you become and out of that to shape how you behave or who you live into. There's a progression to our spiritual formation and it's not linear and neat and tidy, but there is something to it from believing to becoming to behaving. Put another way, what you believe shapes the person you become, which in turn shapes how you behave. I hear people on a regular basis from our church all the time, I hear people rail against behavior modification. And I kind of get it. I get, I get that legalism is toxic, and some of you grew up in that kind of environment, and there's just this knee-jerk uh, trigger, emotional trigger. To, I get that for sure. Um, the problem is, like, I'm pretty sure that Jesus does want to modify my behavior at least. I know that I do. There's just a little bit of discrepancy between the Sermon on the Mount and my day-to-day life. Not a lot, but just a little. Like, not, not much, but, I'm, but just a little bit between Jesus' vision of human flourishing and how I live on a day-to-day basis. The problem with behavior modification, I don't think, is that it wants to modify our behavior. I'm pretty sure that's a great idea. It's that it starts at the end, not at the beginning. 
and it's all on the surface. It doesn't go deep enough to the root problem and issue to the core of what we believe or what we put our trust in, the truth or the lies that we believe, that we trust, and that we then live into to who we become. Jesus is after more than your behavior. He's after way deeper. He's after the core of who you are, what the writers of the Bible call the heart, which in biblical literature is your thinking and your feeling and your desire. Put another way, it's what you think about, it's what you feel, and it's what you want, right? Or your will or your volition. This is the center of your being, the center of your heart, and Jesus is after that core of you because everything comes out of what you think about, what you feel, and what you want. Everything comes out of, the writers of the Bible say, the heart is the wellspring of life. And as we believe or put our trust in Jesus' vision deep in our heart, in our thinking, in our feeling, in our wanting, as we believe, we start to become become like him, and then we become the kind of people who naturally start to behave like him from the inside out. Right? Not that there isn't will and volition and discipline to it, there's a cross to it, but you just start to like act the way that you actually are. Whenever we do something and we're like, oh, that, that, was, that wasn't me, that was so stupid, that's, that's a little weird, that was you, that was me. Like you were living out of what's true of you. And the problem is that you, like me, are in desperate need of salvation, right, from the inside out. So we want to become the, I mean, Willard would say that God's eventual goal is for you to become the kind of person that he can empower to do whatever you want. It doesn't mean that in our kind of, you know, like be true to yourself. He meant that you have been so transformed and terraformed in your heart that you just naturally want the kinds of things that Jesus wants for you and other people. That you just naturally come up with creative ideas and passion and thought and Jesus is just like, yes, 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 let me empower you to that end because you at a heart level have become like Jesus and have become the kind of person for whom it is easier to love your enemy than it would ever be to do violence to your enemy. It is easier to forgive than it would ever be to say something nasty on Twitter. It is easier to pray and bless and encourage or just shut up and be quiet than it would ever be to gossip. It is easier to just relax and trust God than it would ever be to freak out and worry. It is easier to encourage than it would ever be to criticize. It is easier to live in community and openness and honesty and vulnerability than it would ever be to go it alone, hide, put up a front, a facade. It is easier to love than to hate, to rejoice than to mourn, to be at peace than to worry. This is what Jesus is after for my future and for yours. Jesus really cares, unless if I'm missing something, about who you and I become. You know, Willard used to say that the main thing Jesus gets out of your life and the main thing you get out of your life is the person you become through your apprenticeship to Jesus. Millions of years from now, what will matter far more than our career or our work and all of that matters is who we have become and the relationships that we're in. And the top of the list of those relationships is ours with God himself. The heart of an apprentice of Jesus is a ruthless, relentless desire to grow, to mature, to expand, to die to the, what the master of, spiritual masters call the false self and come alive to the true self. And this is so the heart of Jesus. Again, don't misread Jesus' heart as, again, this behavior thing or earning the favor of God. Don't misread. He's after your life. I have come that you may have life and life to the full. It's what Jesus said. And the good life is the result far less of circumstances than it is of character. You know, Rohr says that we try to change our circumstances to avoid changing our character, right? Anybody in the house? And I know from personal experience, life then becomes one long game of whack-a-mole. You know what I mean? It's like you solve one circumstantial problem in your life, like, and then I'll be at peace, and then it's like, boom, another one comes out. And then you solve that one, singleness, boom, got it done. And then boom, it's another one. Marriage is the next problem. And then boom, and you're like, solve that one. And then children, you're like, oh, wow, boom. And then like 20 years later, the next one is done. And it's like, you just go around, and it's just whack-a-mole of like, when I get this job, when I graduate from this, when I break into this tax bracket, when I move to this city, 
community, when I meet the right person, when I get into the right church, when I deal with this sin, when I work through my father, when, when I, when I, when I, and it's always future. The peace, the happiness, the joy, the life is always down there somewhere else. When I get here, when I do that, when I have that, when I own that, when I'm in relationship with that, it's never right here and now. You will never ever live in the future. You will never live anywhere but in the moment. So whatever happiness is, it has to be here and now or later. That's why the older you become, the more. I, I love aging. My best friend just turned 40 a few days ago. And I'm only 38, but it was like, that was a big moment. Like a friend, close friend to turn 40. I was like, wow, when your friends are turning 40, you're old, right? <laughs> um, but man, I just, I'm 38. I, I love like aging. I don't know if 30 still counts, but I love it. I love it. Like if, if happiness is the result of character, more than circumstances, then theoretically with each passing year, you have more potential to grow and mature into a happy, healthier person. And you, I enjoy my life now more than ever before. My point is whack-a-mole, like that thing, try to change your circumstances to be happy. Oh gosh, it's just, it's a sales pitch. A far better, I think, approach is to apprentice under Jesus and to become the kind of person who is happy no matter the circumstances because you have now the inner disposition of Jesus, the triumvirate all through Jesus' teachings and Paul in the New Testament of love and joy and peace, which are more than just emotions, but are the inner conditions of the heart. That's where it's at. And counter to, this is counterintuitive, but to what a lot of people think in the West, as we become more like Jesus, we don't actually become clones. Like there's some weird stuff with music and fashion in the church in the West and I don't wanna talk about it, right? <laughs> but for the most part, we don't become clones. We actually become more our real true self. The irony of our society is that for all of our hyper-focus on individualism, sin makes people the same. It makes people slaves of desire. We call it freedom to do whatever we want which is a misdefinition of freedom. For thousands of years, not just the Christian tradition, the human wisdom tradition has all said freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. It is the ability to not have to do what you want. To rise above your urges, your inclinations, your appetites, and to live free into a vision of human flourishing. Sin makes people the same. They fall into the same, we fall into the same old, tired, uncreative patterns of lust, infidelity, divorce. Yeah, that's really unique. Greed, materialism, discontentment, dishonesty. Yeah, nobody's ever done that before. Anger, bitterness, break off a relationship, yeah, nobody's never heard that story before. How unique, right? It makes people the same. I don't, I don't say that in condensation, just in honesty. Why all of the emphasis on fashion in our society? I think in part, this is not a slam on fashion, but I think in part, it's because sin makes us all the same. So we look to fashion to set us apart as unique and worthy of love rather than to our character and our way of life. But if you follow Jesus, you are set free from the need to posture and perform either to fit into an image or to break the stereotype of the image, which is the new image, whatever, <laughs> right? In order to experience love. If everybody has purple hair, I'm just saying, it doesn't mean what it used to, all right? Not a slam of purple hair, that's fantastic. Oh gosh, I'm just in trouble. It's the seven, I'm so, we love your, okay, just moving on, I'm sorry. Just apologize and move on. Um, my point is, we're free to be loved for who we are and yet loved into who we are not yet, right? This is Jesus, uh, that, thank you. <laughs> the first part wasn't, but that was, that was okay, right? Free to become more like Jesus and in doing so, our real true self. M. Scott Peck, who's a psychologist, I'm just devouring his work right now, he writes this, if ever one has the good fortune to meet a living saint, one will have then met someone absolutely unique. Though their visions may be remarkably similar, the personhood of saints is remarkably different. This is because they have become utterly themselves. God creates each soul differently so that when all the mud is finally cleaned away, his light will shine through it in a beautiful, colorful, totally new pattern. 
be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and finally, goal three is to do what he did. Or really, a better way to say that, it's just a mouthful, is to do what he would do if he were you. Right, I know, again, I'm dating myself here, but I already gave you my age, who cares? And I like aging, so I'm okay with it. Um, But uh, remember, in high school, late 90s, there was this bracelet, uh, WWJD, it was all the rage. Anybody, there's always somebody at church who still has one and is like gross now and really old, but they're like, yeah, was anybody? There was somebody at the morning, nobody? Oh man, it's because we're into fashion, we're so, oh, there's somebody? Fantastic, whatever, let's just say there is, all right? And, you know, that's a good question. I remember that from high school. It's a good question. What would Jesus do in this situation or that? But it's not a great question. It's a bit unhelpful. Like, you know, if you're a mom, like, how would Jesus handle sleep training and breastfeeding? There's not a lot in the Gospels about that, you know? (laughs) If you, like, run an accounting firm, like, how would Jesus... I don't know, he's probably good at math. I don't know what, how he would do that. Landscape architecture, how would he do water irrigation? He'd probably just walk on a water if there was a flood. I don't know, <laughs> help people out from drowning. I don't know how he would do it. Because you see, the odds are that you're not a single celibate male Jewish itinerant rabbi, rabbi from first century Palestine. The odds, maybe you are, great. <laughs> but the odds are you're not. So what if you are a 21st century single parent from Portland? What if you're a student at PSU? What if you're in medical residency? What if you're a creative or an entrepreneur or an artist? What if you're a pastor? What if you're a dad? What if you're a mom? What if you're whatever? A better question is what would Jesus do if he were me? If he had my gender, sisters. Like what would Jesus do if he was a woman? How would he, how would he live? How would he inhabit the female body, female sexuality, the female personhood? How would Jesus live if he had my personality type, if he had my Myers-Briggs, if he had my Enneagram number? Jesus is all the Enneagram numbers. Okay, whatever, but (laughs) hypothetical scenario. What if he had yours? Um, how, How would he live if he had your education or lack of education? If he had your IQ, if he had your emotional makeup, if he had your father wound, if he had your family of origin, if he had your income level, if he had your address, your city, your, you see what I'm saying, you fill in the blank. How would he live out this kingdom vision? How would he live? How would he, what would he do with his time, his money, his resources, his life, his mouth? For the apprentice of Jesus, that is the question to which all of life is an attempt at an answer. A clumsy, we fumble our way through, but an attempt at an answer. To apprentice under Jesus is to see our life in this city through his eyes with creative intent. To see no line of demarcation between spiritual life and life. Between Jesus never said anything about spiritual life. He said a heck of a lot about life and life to the full to see no line, no difference between prayer and scripture and church and our job and the office and class and our math test and our budget and our diet and our sexuality and hospitality with neighbors and justice and the income and racial disparity, all of it, to just see all of it through the lens of the kingdom of God and to embody Jesus' vision of the rule and the reign of God is another way to say that, of life as God intended, as life with God into his vision of human flourishing, however you wanna define the kingdom, to embody that in Portland as it is in heaven. So be with Jesus, become like Jesus and do what he would do if he were you. This is what we call practicing the way of Jesus. If you have to distill the vision for Bridgetown Church down into a sentence, not a slogan, but a sentence, it's practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. This idea of the way of Jesus is straight from the mouth of Jesus himself. The way of Jesus is exactly what it sounds like. It is a way of life, not just a set of ideas that we believe in our head or what we call Bible and theology, not just a list of do's and don'ts or what we call ethics, not just a Sunday event or what we call ecclesiology or church or whatever. It is all of that, but it's more. It is a lifestyle based on that of Jesus himself. This is why the four gospels are biographies, not systematic theology textbooks. And this is why the four biographies are full of stories about the details of Jesus' life. Not just his teaching, not just a miracle story here or there, and then the death and resurrection, but details of his life. One morning, I got up early to pray. Another time, he was tired and went off to a solitary place. One time, he was weeping great drops of blood. 
on the Sabbath, he was walking through a cornfield. Have you read that? I thought, why is that there? Stories about the details of Jesus' life. It's easy to skip over all the details. This problem is not new. It goes all the way back to the Apostles' Creed, which we think is from the second century. And this is not to slam the Apostles' Creed, but if you know it from heart, it goes right from born of a virgin to suffered under Pontius Pilate. There's a little bit in between those two events, right? None of the gospel writers go right from birth to death, right? In fact, most of the material in the gospels maybe with the exception of John, but most of the material is about all the part in between. And again, it's not just teaching and miracle stories, that's the bulk, but there's all, it's flush with all of these stories about the details of life. Guess what, that makes perfect sense because it is a biography. Any biography readers in the house, anybody? It's always, yes, you don't have to be embarrassed, we're proud of you, like there's always a few, not very many, but a few die hard. Whenever I see like a biography as a bestseller, I'm like, how did that happen, right? They're all like seven or 800 pages long and you know, it like starts out, I remember reading Lincoln's biography, like I saw the movie and Daniel Day-Lewis was incredible and like, was that even Daniel Day-Lewis? I don't even know, it was so good. I'm like, oh, let's read the biography and then you're on like page 619 as like some dead guy in Lincoln's cabinet fighting and you're like, who cares, right? So, but biography, I'm not a, I'm not a diehard biography person, I'm, I dabble. And so every, every summer I make myself read at least one. Actually this summer I read three. I read um, Luther by Metaxas, which was incredible. I read Dallas Willard, um, and then I read A.W. Tozer's biography. And, but think about it, whether you read a lot or little, um, why do we read biographies? They're not really fun, like, I mean, if you're really nerdy, they're fun. But for, m- God bless you. Um, it's, it's not Hunger Games, you know what I mean? It's not a page turner. Hunger Games, by the way, is amazing. Don't judge me, that is such a good young adult series for a 38-year-old. Um, but <laughs> it is, don't, haters, you need to read it. Um, but why? Well, most of us, there's lots of reasons, but most of us read biographies in order to find out about the details of a luminary's life, in order to copy or incorporate some of those, not all, but some of those details into our own life in the hope that we might have some kind of a similar result as they did. So if you're in the tech industry, you read Elon Musk, that was fun last year, or or you read Bill Gates and you read Steve Jobs and you read, okay, so-and-so's pro-education, Peter Thiel is against it, okay, Bill Gates does a reading day each week, and like you get the lay of the land and then you figure out what to incorporate into your own life based on your stage of life and your personality or whatever, and your hope is that maybe, maybe if I do some of the things that this luminary did, I'm no Steve Jobs or whoever your hero is, but maybe, (laughs) don't make him your hero, but, um, maybe something similar will happen in my own life. The biographies of Jesus are no different, yet tragically very few modern Western followers of Jesus read them that way. Very few. Most of us skip right over the details, or we think, well, that was Jesus, he's Jesus, not me, or whatever it is. But as we like to say, if you want to experience the life to the full that Jesus has on offer, then you have, you start, to start, you adopt the lifestyle of Jesus because your life is the byproduct of your lifestyle. All of the practices that we work through are based on the life and in particular on the details of Jesus. None of them are commanded. Jesus never commands you once to get up early in the morning and read your Bible and pray though I recommend that all of you do it 365 days of the year. Jesus never commands you to Sabbath, though man, I can't think of a more important discipline for our day and age. I don't think he he never commands you to show up at synagogue every single Sunday, though he was there every single Sunday. He doesn't command, he commands you to pray. That's about the only one I can figure out as far as the disciplines or the practices. Jesus just does all of it, and then he says, come, follow me. And that's not even a command, that's an invitation. You don't wanna practice silence and solitude? Fine, no problem. You don't wanna read your Bible? Okay. But there's an open invite if you wanna follow Jesus. Another way to translate follow Jesus is copy the details of Jesus' life. Adopt Jesus' lifestyle as your own in the hope and the prayer of the dream that you achieve a like similar result to Jesus. What result? Well. All of the practices 
and please hear me, at the core are about making space for God. All of them, silence and solitude, prayer, fasting, Bible, church, community, simplicity, we haven't even done that one yet. All of them, Sabbath, church on Sunday, are all a means to an end. Please hear me, the end is not prayer, I read through the Bible in a year, I was at church 50 weeks of the year. Like, it's not the end. The end is to slow down, to open up your mind and even your body to encounter the spirit and the truth of God. As a lot I could say I don't have time for, but we are transformed at the core by the spirit and the truth of God. Spirit is the presence of God, relationship with God, truth. We have mental maps that we live from, ideas about reality that may or not be true. When we live into true maps of reality, we flourish, we show up to reality better. When we live into lies, we wither and we die because we don't show up to reality well. So we're transformed by the spirit and the truth of God. Whatever the spiritual discipline or the practices, church, singing, sermon, podcast, reading, Sabbath, silent solitude, prayer, Bible, whatever it is, it's a means to an end to open up your mind and your body to be transformed by the spirit and the truth of God. That's it. St. John of the Cross, a Spanish mystic that I've been reading a lot this last year, has this to say. The spiritual life is about making space for God in our lives a space for God to fill because his greatest desire is to give himself completely to us. Please do not miss the why behind all of our practices. It's not legalism, it's not a guilt trip, it's not a religious hangover, it's not behavior modification, it's not earning the love of God, it is none of that. Get that out of your head, please. There is a discipline and even a duty to them, but the driving motivation behind it is loving relationship. Again, that is counterintuitive in our post-sexual revolution, Western autonomous worldview, where love has been redefined as an emotion rather than as a virtue. This is hard to get your head around, and we're actually told not to do things that don't feel authentic to ourselves, i.e. that we don't want to do. Holy cow, is that some really lousy advice, right? You want a recipe for perpetual immaturity? Just be true to yourself. <laughs> That's a really great way to stay screwed up for a long time. And we'll talk, I don't, I don't mean, again, I don't mean that anger or judgment. That's, that's really bad advice. Myself is a mixed bag. There's some really good stuff in there. There is some other stuff in there too, right? So there is a discipline and there is a duty, but we forget this, listen carefully. Much of love is manifested as the discipline and duty to make space for relationship. Any of you in a marriage or in a long-term relationship, you get this more than anybody. Every single Friday, I have Fridays off, my kids are in school, every Friday morning, T and I go out on a date. We have three or four hours just to talk, eat, drink coffee, fight, catch up, plan, (laughs) make up, you know, process, connect at a soul level. Every night, and we're not great at it, but we try every night to do the same for 20 or 30 minutes after dinner. And you know, there are times um, when it feels like a duty, honestly, Um, you know, I don't know if my wife would say the same. I think she would. And there are times when it's a discipline. And man, there's a billion other things on my plate and I have a to-do list stretching to tiger and back. And I just, I have a lot I don't even want. There are times when it's a discipline and it's a duty, but it's not legalism, it's not a guilt trip, it's love. It's making space for our relationship to function as one of the top priorities in my life and for us to grow and thrive together. Our relationship with God is no different. We talk so much, it's beat to death, the cliche of a relationship with Jesus. But think about the gravity of that metaphor. Your relationship with Jesus is no different. You get out what you put in, and if you want it to grow and thrive, and you want intimacy, and you want soul connection, and you want joy and laughter and friendship, then you have to create space and time, and there are times when it will feel like discipline, because it is, and there are times when it will even feel like duty, and that's okay. It's okay to follow Jesus, to come to church, to read the Bible, even to pray when you feel nothing, get nothing out of it, don't even want to. That is an expression of your love for God and it is making space for God to love you. 
It's making space for Jesus, as St. John said, to give himself completely to us. This teaching, and again, this is just, I mean, this is for us, this is ground zero. There are all sorts of reasons behind our practices and why we emphasize it so much. Um, you know, the digital age, secularism, the breakdown of the family, post-Christian, this, our working theory of spiritual formation that says Sundays and sermons are not enough to change. Um, there's all sorts of reasons. The main one at the top of the list is just to make space for God. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he did. That's not a three-step formula, but I think there is a progression to it. And if there's a center, if there's an anchor, if there's a baseline, if there's a step one, I think it is this, it's life with God. It's what Jesus called abiding. This teaching of Jesus um, has become, I don't know, the, the anthem of my life. If you've yet to memorize scripture, I can't think of a better place to start than John 15. Quote, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, or that can be translated abide in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. The word remain or abide is meno in Greek, and it more literally means to live in or to make your home in. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this. Live in me, make your home in me, just as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine. You can't bear fruit unless you are joined with me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relation intimate or organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. Separated, you can't produce a thing. You produce grapes when you mature as my disciples. Notice that in Jesus' mind, he has a part in our spiritual formation and our life with God, and we have a part too. He has a responsibility, and we have a responsibility. As Augustine said a millennia and a half ago, without him, we can't, but without us, he won't. Now, I don't, I don't know what the breakdown is. I don't think it's 50-50. I don't know if it's 99, 1%, or 80-20. I have no idea, but I know that God has a part in my growth, my maturity, my life, and that I have a part too. God's part is to grow fruit out of your life. You are not responsible for that. You're not responsible for your own spiritual formation. Your part is to make your home in God. You are responsible for that. To create space, to slow down, to do the hard work, and it is hard work of apprenticeship. You know what the hard work is? It's basically this, saying no to a lot of things, making space in your life for God, meeting him in the places of pain, and trusting in him to transform you and lead you. So the work is a lot more like letting Jesus do the work. But there's something to that. Slow down, to make space, to meet him in the place of pain, and to trust. And over the years, over the decades, over the lifetime, you experience transformation. And this is our part, this is our responsibility. So many people are stuck in perpetual immaturity, distance from God, a father wound, a pain, a trauma, because we don't get the responsibility that we have, not to form ourselves into the image of Jesus, but to make space for Jesus to do that. My buddy Dave, recently in a teaching, said it this way, you have both the ability <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's my friend who turned 40, right? You gotta be careful when you plagiarize your friends, you know? They won't sue you, but other things will happen. You have both the ability, stop laughing, it's a really good quote, okay? <laughs> you have both the ability and responsibility to live in God. You can live in God. If you don't think you can, you can, and you must make your home in God. You can and you must. And as you live in God or abide or be with Jesus, out of that place you will become like Jesus, and out of that place you will do what he did. Now, that is our vision um, for Bridgetown Church. It really is just our best take on Jesus' vision as far as we can get our head around it of what it means to apprentice under him. That said, whether you are in our community for a year or two and then you're off to grad school or a job, wherever, or whether you literally die here, right, and are here for decades. I, that sounded kind of morose. <laughs> it happens, people die, all right? 
um, our prayer, our agenda, if we have an agenda, our dream of myself and our elders and our team is basically those three things. One, that you begin to experience life with Jesus. You just find yourself slowing down in less and less of a hurry year over year. That you, in your mind, begin to just go back to God all through the day. That you begin to just say no, 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 no to things, schedule, party, event, and yes, yes, yes to Jesus' prayer, life, and community. In the language of my spiritual director, you move from the compulsive life to the contemplative life. Secondly, that you grow and mature and become more like Jesus, and in doing so, your real true self, year over year. That you move from anger and sarcasm. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, <laughs> this is actually, if you've been around the church for a long time, I'm much better than I used to be. We just started way behind, right? Um, and criticism and angst to love that you move from melancholy and grumbling and despair, narcissism to joy, that you move from hurry and stress and anxiety, a life of speed to peace, that over time you move from insecurity as so rooted in our humanity and its, its mere twin arrogance to a carefree, genuine humility where you can both laugh at yourself, most of the time you forget about yourself, you can genuinely celebrate who you are and take delight in it with non-judgment in the same way that you celebrate who others are with no competition or comparison. You develop a capacity for brutally honest self-examination where you have the courage to stare into the darkest recess of what Jung called your shadow, what Paul called your flesh, but without any self-condemnation to see the worst in you but to see it through the lens of the Father's love and to let God love you into healing and freedom and maturity. To grow into a ruthless, burning passion for holiness. To live into a deep place that cannot be put into words of trust in Jesus, his leadership of your life, his vision of what it means to be human over your own and that of our society. And finally, that as you are with Jesus and you become like Jesus, our dream is that you mature to the point where you just naturally do the kinds of things that Jesus would do if he were you. you just, it just comes out of you. And you practice, uh, you know, you create space for the gospel through the practice of hospitality and you preach the gospel and you demonstrate the gospel with healing and you pray for the sick and you do justice and you live with simplicity and generosity and you welcome all and you partner with Jesus in the kingdom in our city. Our prayer is that you would do this together, practicing the way of Jesus together, not just show up every other Sunday and catch the podcast and have a few friends for coffee, but that you would, of your own free will, step into the crucible of community and there be forged to become more like Jesus in yourself. As you all know, Bridgetown communities are the heartbeat of our church. And finally, that you would do this in Portland, that you would take this city seriously, that you would live here if you don't, that you would move into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson translated John chapter one and Jesus, that you would share this city's joy, its coffee, its emerging kombucha scene, its uh, like <laughs> urban planning, and you'd share its pain. Winter is coming, right? <laughs> that you would share its gap between rich and poor, its history of racism, its property taxes, all of that and that you would take spiritual responsibility for the city that we call home to see the kingdom of God come in Portland as it is in heaven. This is our vision, really it's just our best take on Jesus' vision for life with him as a community that we call the church and all of you are invited. Let's stand together and pray.